My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides, Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Friends and listeners, this is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming, coming to you again for another Euripides, Eumenides, a theater history podcast. Wow, we have hit 40. We have hit 40 episodes, 40 mainstream, full-length episodes. Mainstream? I don't know about that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how to punch myself up. <laughs> but yeah, man, we are going strong. And if you are in the US, UK, and Canada, we've got our live episode that uh, is coming up here pretty soon, uh, July 29th, 2022. You can get your tickets at yotheater.com. But enough of that. I said on my last episode, Shakespeare and Starlings in America, that I have a couple topics that might not be as in-depth as the others, so I'm doing a couple mini-sodes so I can focus on that live episode. And luckily, I have a, a good friend and prior guest who was available to chat. He's always excited to chat about this kind of stuff, and I was able to get him today. This is my good friend, theater instructor from Casper, Wyoming, Zach Schneider. Hello, Zach. Hello, Aaron. How are you? Happy fortieth. Yeah, no kidding. Isn't that awesome? I mean, you don't you don't look a day over thirty five. Thirty five episodes. I love it. Yeah, exactly. Um, I <laughs> am so <laughs> glad that we got you on here because uh, uh, frequent listeners, if you've uh, if you remember, Zach was on me. He had his own theater horror story, which was amazing. But he was on this uh, show for episode number six about Laura Keene who held dying President Lincoln's head in her lap after being on stage during the performance of Our American Cousin. Uh, sheesh, I mean, and still doesn't have a theater named after her. How do you follow that one? How do you follow that one? But it was kind of neat. Uh, the museum that I was at that inspired my last episode actually had a handbill of the evening of my uh, of our American cousin, I snapped it and sent to Zach, and we were like, mm -hmm. "Man, mm -hmm. that wait a minute, this is actually history. It actually did happen. <laughs> it did, yeah." And what struck me is, you know, to look at a theater poster, then you really had to stop and and, and spend some time and tackle <laughs> some, some literature. It, it it wasn't all about the 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 snappy graphic that Cameron Macintosh. No 
as popular guys. Yeah, yeah, right? You don't need an image associated with the show. It's just, you know, different font sizes. And then uh, there was like, that night was also a benefit for somebody else that we have no idea who they were, the Gorleys or something like that. You're like, well, that's cool. But yeah, yeah. Holy smokes. It was dense. <laughs> Maybe, maybe that's where somebody like Cameron McIntosh came along and said, you know what, how about we just have a picture? We got to clean these things up. <laughs> oh, man. So, Zach, here you are. You're in your summer vacation, but you are still in the classroom today getting some things taken care of. And we know that a teacher's job is almost never done. But uh, you had quite a year. Uh, last I remember talking to you, you were getting ready for a Chicago. Yeah, we, we uh, ended the year with Chicago, the high school edition. Oh, good. Uh, and uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, folks would ask me about that. Uh, and I explained to them, look, you know, we know what we're doing. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> she killed Fred Casely because he stole five bucks from her. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Nobody, <laughs> nobody walks out with my milk duds. <laughs> I don't know what what it was. It there was a high school somewhere that they were doing rent, and and the the, the principal made them change it. So instead of everybody having AIDS, they all had diabetes. Um, yeah, no, and yeah, 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 no, yeah, yeah. no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, up insulin break, uh, yeah. and there was and. and Yes, diabetes is something of a plague on our nation. Nowhere near the gravity of the AIDS epidemic, but no, no. Wow, let's whitewash that one. Okay, cool. So you did Chicago. What was the one you did in the fall? Uh, we did Frankenstein. Ooh, that's yeah, a fun, challenging piece. You know, it really was. I, I, I like tackling something that the language arts teachers uh, are studying. Um, but I also I also like language that challenges the kids, and yes. um, you know, so it, it was a, a deep, heady piece. Uh, it was really, really, uh, it was a lot of fun, though. Yeah, yeah, and and that's always a fascinating thing to see, like how you're going to create the creature, or you know, um, how you're going to manifest the whole Prometheus myth in there and stuff. That's that's mm -hmm. that's a fascinating thing, especially when you're talking about you know connecting it to the language arts teachers and everything, and you know, then they can all be like, well, if you go to the play, you get extra credit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Awesome. That's a fun, diverse season. I like that. I like that. And of course, you know, you're still heavily involved with the, the state drama festival and, and, and your students yeah, are yeah. very, very actively involved with that. So, man, I love the, uh, the, the diversity and, and the involvement your program gets those students. But, oh, uh, thank you. Yeah. 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 We're going to go ahead and jump into things here. And, uh, I, uh, you know, as, as we do, once we're done with the season, we sit back and we look and reflect and we go, what worked, you know, what, what did we enjoy? What did we uh, uh, appreciate? And um, while the question I asked you doesn't necessarily relate to that, it does give us a chance to reflect on what we think works and what might not work. So <laughs> what I asked you uh, to ponder over, and you gave me an immediate answer, and I'll ask you to elaborate here in a second, was 
which is your favorite actor in the Brit pack and why? And before, like the Brit pack are those 80s and 90s group of actors that seem to take all the good roles of TV and film and then get a whole bunch of stuff on stage. It just got a lot of attention. So favorite actor in the Brit pack and why, Zach? Yeah, and I, I hope I answered this one right. But, uh, you know, if I think of the consummate British actor of the 80s and 90s, um, the one that stands out to me is Gary Oldman. Mm-hmm. Here, here. I can I can see that. But you started to talk about it a little bit, but I'd be interested in hearing why why that was your pick. Sure. Um, you know, I, Gary Oldman is, he was the original for me, you know, the, that character actor, you know, that, that people go, Oh yeah, that guy. Um, yeah. But okay. he, he, he would be in these roles that you, that were iconic, but you, you, you wouldn't put together. I mean, starting out on the scene with uh, Sid and Nancy and as a mm, teenager, yep. you know, a teenager in the late eighties, early nineties, that punk rock aesthetic was always cool. And so that movie had a, <laughs> had a sort of romantic uh, thing to it. But then uh, Quentin Tarantino's movies came along. And, oh, um, man. Yes. In uh, True Romance, which he... Oh, that was so such a weird role. But he yeah. plays this, like, crazy drug dealer who is just wigged out with the dreadlocks and the two different color eyes and just the, the intensity of that role. Oh man. Um, yeah. And then you jump into, to, uh, uh, Leon, the professional where he's the psychotic driven right. detective and then, and then go further afield to fifth element where he plays, <laughs> you know, yeah. The, craziest villain with this texas accent and um you know i just i love the way that he disappears into everything and then uh rosencrantz and gildenstern right right you know and then uh i think somewhere in there he was a dracula yeah lee harvey oswald yeah lee harvey oswald um uh, and then you know as we get closer to today he finally gets some award recognition for being completely unrecognizable as Winston Churchill. Yeah, yeah. So you know, yeah. I mean, I okay. just, I, I dig him. I, I and I mm -hmm. like the fact that that he's about the work. He isn't. He doesn't get wrapped up in the pretentious like method of what he does. He just, you know, mm. he's about the work. Mm. And I, I, so, I just enjoy. I enjoy so, what he does. So you think the method is somewhat pretentious? I think, you know, it's valuable. I think it, you, you know, that, that sort of looking at a character from an empathetic point of view is useful, but I think the, the idea that you have to, you have to uh, 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 surrender yourself mm -hmm. in order to create something is, is, I don't know. There's something self-absorbed about that to me, you know? Well, I mean, Going back to it, I think Gary Oldman is a very interesting choice there uh, as well, uh, because, I mean, you you have a huge amount of actors you could have chosen from. I mean, the same generation included people like Kenneth Branagh and Colin Firth and mm -hmm. Tim Roth and mm -hmm. Miranda Richardson and Emma Thompson. And I think Kate Winslet, you can throw in there, too. They're just yeah. outstanding British actors. But I'm Helena Bonham Carter. Helena Bonham Carter. Mm -hmm. um, 
I just have to marvel that you didn't pick Mr. Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, going with that, that method, uh, you know, and I, I, mm -hmm. I admire the heck out of what he does. It just mm -hmm. is not a, it's not, it's not something that works for me. Yep. Yep. And it is, I, and at the end of the day, I believe it is kind of a thing, but, uh, well, the unfortunate side of the fact that you picked Gary Oldman is that we're not going to be talking about him today. That's fine. But rather about Daniel Day-Lewis. Let's bring it on. <laughs> and for uh, brevity's sake, I'm just going to call him DDL for a lot of this story, just so we can just get it there. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, as you mentioned, he's known for his intense approach to method acting. And here are just some examples of the lengths that Daniel Day-Lewis has gone to in order to, air quotes, become the role. He learned how to speak the Czech language to play a Czech immigrant in the film The Unbearable Lightness of Being, just so his character could speak English with an authentic Czech accent. Yeah, that's dedication okay. right there. Okay, I get that. I'm like, that's, that's, a, that's a lot, but okay. Now, when he played a man with cerebral palsy in my left foot, he would stay mm -hmm. in character between takes, remaining wheelchair bound, and having his lunch spoon fed to him. Yeah, he he did didn't he met with the uh, the family of the the real life person he was playing in mm -hmm. character. Like he was yep. sitting in the wheelbarrow <laughs> while <laughs> this dude's family rolls up to like give their blessing to the movie or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, let's see. For Last of the Mohicans, in which he played Natty Bumpo, or as they called him in that movie, Hawkeye. Uh, DDL spent days in the Alabama wilderness learning how to live in the manner of an 18th century Native American, trapping his food, learning how to track and hunt with powder rifles, and he even carved his own canoe from scratch. You, you uh, know you know what the director said to him before he set out? Oh, I don't know that. Stay alive, no matter what happens. <laughs> I will find you. <laughs> Now, here's a quote also from that director about Danny Day-Lewis' performance. If he didn't shoot it, he didn't eat it. <laughs> and for Gangs of New York, Daniel Day-Lewis would sharpen knives between takes to stay in character as Bill the Butcher, frequently listening to the music of Eminem as he felt the ego and anger present in a lot of Eminem's music lent itself well to the character. He also learned how to tap the cornea of his eye with a knife. Albeit he did have a protective contact lens on to prevent any damage. Well, but yeah, he, so as you do. Yeah, I mean, he did that so he would learn not to flinch when tapping his eyeball with a knife. You know, and uh, going to Gary Oldman, um, mm -hmm. just a, a quick aside, uh, Christian Bale once asked him, you know, how do you do this? You you go from these these roles like uh, uh, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy, and then and then you bulk up to be Winston Churchill, and then you you lose it all to do this other role. And Gary Oldman looked at him and he goes, "They have makeup for that." <laughs> Isn't it? There's also that Christian Bale story from The Big Short, where the character he played in real life had a lazy eye. And mm -hmm. they were like, okay, we're going to apply a prosthetic for you, just a contact lens. He's like, no, no, I can learn how to do it. And he, <laughs> he did. He taught himself how to have a lazy eye during his performance. And I'm like, well, that's kind of cool. I do enjoy seeing the fact that he can be funny now and still be kind of a cool actor. Still sure, sure, sure. 
But, you know, I mean, Orson Welles got that big close-up thing back in the 30s. You, they could have, I mean, you don't really have to tap your eyeball, Daniel. No. Now, despite all this, DDL will never discuss in interviews the process he takes to create a character. And it would seem that the process varies from role to role, but they all involve deep immersion into the life and circumstances of the character. I mean, if we're talking about it honestly and giving him a fair shake, that's the Stanislavski magic if, isn't it? The acting maxim, how would I conduct myself if I was this character in these circumstances? Yeah, I mean, to the extreme, absolutely. Right, right. So, I mean, why not learn what those circumstances are? I can see the reason for the method, but at the end of the day, you still got to go home and take off your shoes and take out the trash. And... Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, you know, and still in a lot of those, you're sitting in a makeup chair for hours and hours and you're going <laughs> to force... You know, I mean, Gladys from makeup hasn't taken hours and hours of improv and you're, you know, <laughs> how, how was your breakfast this morning, Mr. President? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> now, many who have worked with DDL has stated that he on set completely disappears and the new character emerges. And here's a quote from Jared Harris, who played General Ulysses S. Grant opposite Day-Lewis in the Steven Spielberg from Lincoln. Here's his quote. His attention to detail and commitment is truly impressive, but people refer to it as being an imposition or intimidating. It isn't. Actors do that stuff all the time. He just likes to stay in it, and he asks that you respect that by not talking about bullshit. Oh, I respect that 100%. Right. So like yeah. between takes and everything, you're not going to be like, hey, how are your kids? It's like, hey, man, I'm, I'm kind of trying to stay focused here and everything, but sure. Yeah. Now, DDL has been awarded many awards over the years, including three Academy Awards for Best Actor in a Leading Role, the only person to have ever achieved such distinction. And in 2014, DDL was knighted for his services to the crown, Sir Daniel Day-Lewis. But why am I telling you a story of the film career of a great actor on a theater history podcast? I don't know, Aaron. Why are you telling me the story Would you of a great film actor? <laughs> On a theater history podcast. Would you like to hear about the last time that Daniel Day-Lewis appeared on the stage? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm just trying to imagine that method for, you know, the entire rehearsal period and performance. You know, you're going to do six weeks. Okay. All right. Cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, lay it on me. Let's go. All right. Well, in order to do that, we got to hear a little bit about the bio of DDL. Daniel Day-Lewis was born in Greenwich in the UK in 1957. His father was British poet laureate and novelist Cecil Day-Lewis. And DDL describes that when his father wasn't working as the editorial director for a prestigious publishing house in London, he was locked away in his study, furiously writing his own works. And here's a quote directly from DDL. His study was out of bounds. You had to tiptoe past that room. I knew something was going on in there and it involved writing, end quote. Daniel Day-Lewis also recalls that one of the only positive memories that he has of his father involved sailing a small boat around a small pond in Hyde Park when Daniel Day-Lewis was younger than like 10. He can't remember exactly. It was like, he knows it was before teenage years. So sneaking by the study where dad is quote unquote writing mm -hmm. and uh boating around a pond that's the memories once. of dad once once, once. We, yeah. Yeah, we went we went boating once 
<laughs> and I guess from what I was reading, he didn't have an unhappy childhood, really. Like the family did take frequent vacations to Ireland and stuff. And that's why uh, Danny Day-Lewis still lives in Ireland, because it brings back positive memories for him. Okay. However, Cecil Day-Lewis had been frequently ill from the time that Daniel was around eight and finally died of pancreatic cancer at age 68 when Daniel was only 15. So wow. their relationship was somewhat strained. Dad was pretty old. Were there other brothers and sisters or was it just? Yeah, the, uh... I think I think he has an older sister and a younger brother. I know the older sister for sure. She She's like okay. a, a celebrity chef in the UK. Um, mm -hmm. Now it almost seems like DDL never really knew his father. And despite this, when he found out his father was dying, he raced home from boarding school to be with him, and he held his father's hand when he died. Did he do acting at boarding school? Oh, here we go. Yeah, here. I'm getting into that in just a moment. Okay, do you think even then he's like, I must get, I must get the emotional library. Okay. I must rush all right. home. And... So here we go. At age 15, okay. that yep. happened, all right? Now I'm going to jump back in the timeline a little bit here. Beyond having a strained relationship with his father, DDL was noted in his youth for his introversion and melancholy. And he's actually admitted that about himself in print many times. Now check this out. In primary school, DDL was ridiculed by the children of South London for his mother being Jewish, but also because he was considered too posh, which DDL states the bullies could tell by the way he talked. Mm -hmm. So... He quickly picked up their mannerisms of speaking and gesture. Quote, children are very adaptable. They're great performers. They perform for their mm -hmm. parents all the time to find out how to get what they want. To me, it was absolutely unconscious. It was raw survival at like age nine. I can, I can totally understand that. Yeah. Yep. I, I get it too. Now, Didi also began formally acting in his preteen years, mainly to get away from his disgust with the Seven Oaks Boarding Academy where his parents sent him in order to calm some of his wiliness. <laughs> You're too wily for sending you to a boarding school at age six. Oh, um, man. However, while attending the Bedales Boarding School in his teen years, he had a difficult career choice ahead of him. He was facing a career in either acting or woodworking. DDL has professed that for a time, he imagined a career as a furniture maker. In fact, as a younger boy, while attending a class at a woodworking shop, he demanded to make a ping pong table. Here's a quote. All my life's ambition went into this table. I took it home. We used it for years. It was the start of what became one of my greatest abiding loves, woodworking. Hmm. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I, can, I can get behind that. I have, I have a lot of... Uh, exchange students that come over and and uh, in mm -hmm. europe you choose right it's either right it, it, when you're at high school age they go okay do you want a trade or do or do you want to go the academic route um mm -hmm. and so the, mm -hmm. the kids have to make that choice yeah yeah in the end he chose acting mainly because when he graduated Bedales, he applied for a five-year apprenticeship as a cabinet maker, but was turned down for lack of experience. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and entry-level cabinet maker must have five years experience. Yeah, right. Exactly. Don't you love that? I just love mm -hmm. that. I mean, 
is that not something that's going on right now? There are now hiring signs everywhere and nobody's getting a job. And I think most mm-hmm. of it is, well, you have to have some experience. I'm like, then give them some damned experience, please. Sure, sure. <laughs> so I don't know. Eight, it's been that way for a decade now. Yeah, yeah. you're right. <laughs> now at age 20, DDL was accepted to study at the Bristol Old Vic Theater School. And even from his early years, people saw a talent and intensity for performance that they were not prepared for. Mm-hmm. While he didn't entirely enjoy his time studying at the Bristol Old Vic, this is where he discovered the works of Stanislavski and developed his own method of acting. And so, like, he was never really formally taught the method. He just no, they don't. Yeah, they don't teach it in in Great Britain. No, it's primarily a, a, an American invention. Yeah. 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 Now, after leaving the old old Vic, DDL took his own path. More excited about contemporary political works of theater and somewhat disdainful of the classics, DDL found several TV and film projects that garnered attention, but even that kind of attention led him inevitably back to the stage. So his stage career really flourished from 1979 to 1989. Mm. So as I just mentioned, his primary focus throughout the 80s was his film career. But after winning his first Oscar in 1989, DDL hit the boards again and took on one of the most challenging roles which many young actors aspire to and are summarily judged against all the others who have come before. Daniel Day-Lewis played Hamlet for the yeah, National Theater in 1989. Do you know this story? No, no, but oh, you've got to do Hamlet. Right, you got to do Hamlet. Like, that's mm-hmm. the one. Like, if you're a really amazing actor from age 25 to 35, they're going, when are we going to see your Hamlet? Well, you know, I what I wish is I wish I would have seen... Uh, Keanu Reeves Hamlet uh, in, in the 90s. Whoa, Ophelia. Right? Whoa. And, and somehow that, that, new, that nuance found a home when he's like in his late 50s now. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and though, I tell you what, those John Wick movies, I will watch those any time of day. The, that fight choreography is just stunning. Oh, it's, yeah, it's fantastic. I, you know, I, it, it's getting to be like Looney Tunes level, um, you know, (laughs) Buster Keaton falling off of fire escapes and, you know, and catching himself just with his fingernails. Sure. Sure. Yeah. But you know, as long as he's willing to beat himself up, I'll watch. Yeah, sure. So Back to DDL and his Hamlet. He actually mm-hmm. was in pretty good company for the production. Dame Judy Dench was in the role of Gertrude. The production received fairly decent reviews as far as the look and interpretation of the play. But of course, the interpretation and performance of the title character are always what critics focus on with any production of Hamlet. The critics were not so complimentary of DDL's performance, stating that he didn't really bring much new to the role and that if he was going through anything with his character, it seemed more internalized rather than expressed openly. So, you know, there's that old adage about like, you know, a a stage actor can work on both stage and screen. A screen actor is probably only good on the screen. They have a hard time transitioning back to the stage, you know? Um, Sure. But he, he started the stage went to the screen, really enjoyed it, then came back to the stage. And from my my guess on this is he just couldn't stop thinking that he was on camera. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. And and Hamlet's, you know, Hamlet's a hard character. It, it, yeah. 
Because you're either going to be, you're either going to play it like with the fire and stupidity of a young emo yeah. teenager. And spoiled too. He's a prince. Uh, yeah. Okay. So you've got two Hamlets. You've got the outlandish, oh, woe is me. Everything's horrible. Or you've got the like internal, oh, okay. I'm so yeah. sad. Um, and, and it makes me think of uh, Robert Pattinson in The Batman. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you know, you can either, you can have this, like, flashy Bruce Wayne, or you can have this, you know, life sucks Bruce Wayne. I, I thought that was fascinating because, like, the Bruce Wayne part of his life, he was just like, well, I don't even care to live it, so. Right, right. Yeah. But, you know, what works on stage, uh, that performance wouldn't work on stage. No, no, no. I mean, that was absolutely geared towards a dark, explosive uh, violent action movie yeah and and i i find i think that's the thing with the method acting that that for theater that i i can't hang with is you almost have to ignore that there's an audience there yeah right in film it's very easy because you know if you can tune out the wall of the crew and the camera and mm-hmm. you can you can more focus what's going on internally but on stage, I'm always aware there's an audience there. Right. So I, you know, I feel like at some level I have to perform to the audience. I have to bring them in. And that's right. not a natural thing that you do in life. Right, right. And that and that is a thing about the stage acting that uh, you know, when people ask me, what do you prefer in, in in acting? Do you prefer film or stage? I said, for me, I prefer stage just because I know that it is direct communication. Like I mm-hmm. am actively in these people's lives right at these moments, helping them affect their emotions and their thoughts right now, as opposed to if I'm on film, I can get it, uh, I can get my performance and we can edit it to where it's just right. And I hope that in the future, this affects the minds and hearts of people, yeah. <laughs> you know, but that's just my preference. But um, yeah, uh, I mean, as you're kind of saying, like, if you're not engaging an audience, and this is the National Theater, this is, I, I didn't look at look it up or the seating capacity, I'm just going to assume it's probably got like somewhere between 800 to 1500 seats. Yeah. Okay, because it yeah. was, you've got to fill that space. It was sold out every night. I mean, uh, you know, even though initial reviews kind of went, eh, I don't know, people didn't care. They're like, well, that guy won an Oscar and he's playing Hamlet at the National, I'm going to buy that ticket. So the unfortunate side of it is I don't think he met every person in that audience. I think he was there for an audience of one himself Mm -hmm. feeling everything that he was feeling. And a lot of critics even said, you know, some, they stated that he more or less removed all the poetry from the character. Ouch. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you just, if you just say the words, the poetry is there. Yeah. Right. (laughs) That's how it's written. But it wasn't DDL's performance that made this production something to talk about. Seven performances from the end of the production in the scene in which Hamlet is speaking to the ghost of his murdered father in the first act. Here's an account of what occurred. In that scene between grieving son and his recently deceased father, Daniel actually saw the ghost of his own dead father, Cecil Day-Lewis, standing on the stage and staring at him. 
Daniel staggered off the stage, inconsolable, and simply could not carry on. End quote. <laughs> could, could you imagine? Just, you know, you know, after you telling me what his relationship with his dad is like, you you know, you imagine your dad just standing. I can just see Cecil standing there in his tweed coat with his mustache and his <laughs> monocle. He's, he's, he's just got his arms crossed, and he's just like, "You have drained all of the life out of this performance, Daniel." Why aren't you listening to the critics? They obviously know more. It wasn't my brother, the cancer, that killed me. It was your performance, <laughs> Daniel. And again, for an audience of one, uh, <laughs> I guess uh, DDL was found backstage sobbing. And his understudy, mm. Jeremy Northam, filled in for him for the remainder of the performance and the remainder of the run. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. I, I You know, I watched that happen once. Oh, yeah? Um, to an actor. Um, and it wasn't even during a, like a paid performance. It was a benefit night where they were doing previews of the season before. And, and this actor just hit, um, I don't know what happened. He, he, he dropped his lines and blanked. He, wa- he just walked out. Oh, you he were telling me about him. that. Yeah. Yeah. He walked off stage, walked straight out the door into his car, left. He wasn't back at that theater as a uh, as an actor or an audience member for eight, nine years. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Did anybody ever talk to him about it? Um, yeah, I'm sure. I know that people did. I, I didn't find out exactly, you know. Yeah, but he was he was again one of those actors where I mean you when you acted with him backstage you really didn't talk to him. Oh, right? so he was, like he was he was that focused on the performance yep, that you're like yep. okay I, I don't want to mess with your method okay that's cool. Um, yep. And so you know I think there's that there's that that preparation to that concentration and then when you lose that focus mm-hmm. it's hard it's hard to get that confidence back. See, that was something that I remember one of my acting teachers in college uh, talked about quite often was focus. Like, you know, the good actors will be able to separate themselves from a role. Like they can go backstage after, you know, uh, meeting the ghost of Hamlet's father and, and you step off stage, you go, God, I got to go take a piss. I'm, I'm, I'll be right back, you know. Um, <laughs> but, you know, they, verily, where art the chamber pots? You know, yes. you know. <laughs> um, to pee or not? <laughs> Perfect. I'm sorry. Walked right that, into it. That was a little hanging. Okay. Daniel Day-Lewis has not returned to the stage since that night, claiming that his departure from the production was due to, quote, nervous exhaustion and has been pretty mum on the topic since it happened. Yeah. Yep. DDL has opted more for film work, as we discussed, and he's always known for the intensity with which he approaches his character development, but he's also known for his selectiveness of projects, sometimes leaving five years between films. So the most we as a culture know about DDL comes from his film work. And, mm-hmm. and this is, oh, go ahead. And you know, I, you know, you may be leading up to this, but did, didn't he just recently say he's retired from? He retired after film. He retired after Phantom Thread. He just yeah. said, "I'm done. I'm done." Walked away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, again. One of the reasons we only know about him from film work is that he very rarely gives interviews. 
like he hated doing any kind of publicity for the shows and just didn't want to talk about like come see the show or anything like that it was just yeah i mean i get that. oh they're, they're the worst i've been a reporter i've had to ask uh, the you know the junket questions where you know you're talking to one of the one of the uh indigo girls and you're the <laughs> tenth tenth reporter she's talked to that day and and everybody's asking the exact same questions that you have to answer. I, you know, I mean, he's, all, he's, he's probably always have to having to, to talk about his method, right? Yes. Yeah. He doesn't want to talk about. It. Yeah. So here, uh, I'll give you a quote about why he doesn't like to give interviews. And he said this in an interview. Actors should never give interviews. Once you know what color socks they wear, you'll remember it the next time you see them performing and it will get in the way. It is not in anyone's interest. No, I, he's, he's right. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, if Johnny Depp actually gets to be an, an actor again after everything that's mm-hmm. happened to him with his trials in the last few years, are we going to not see him and think, didn't somebody shit in your bed? Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, every, every time, every time uh, um, Mel Gibson. Yep. You know, yeah. does anything. The only thing you're going to think about is, oh yeah, didn't you uh, yell a bunch of anti-Semitic things at a cop when you were drunk? Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, Daniel Day Lewis is, you know, I got five years in between movies. You're right. Five years in between movies, and my last one is when I played a fashion designer, and that's the one that tipped me over the edge. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. You know, now, Gene yeah. Gene Hackman's last movie, Welcome to Mooseport. <laughs> Right. It's like he didn't even go out on one that was like, I mean, uh, what was the, the the conspiracy theory movie with uh, Will Smith? That was a great movie. Oh, yeah. Enemy of the State. Yeah. Yeah. He could he could have hung. That would have been a great one to go. You know what? That's my last one. I'm done. I'm done. But yeah. Well, welcome to Mooseport. <laughs> Just like, OK, I'm done. <laughs> oh, man. Well, going back to DDL, he uh He's also stated something of disdain for stage actors as he feels there is a snobbishness among stage actors against film actors in which they'll all just say, well, stage actors are better. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. But in the long run, did DDL really see his father that night? In a 2012 interview with Time Magazine, just before he won his third Oscar for Lincoln, he gave this response about seeing his father while playing Hamlet. It's kind of a longer quote. I had to cut some from it. Mm -hmm. To some extent, I probably saw my father's ghost every night. Because, of course, if you're working in a play like Hamlet, you explore everything through your own experience. That correspondence between father and son, or the son and the father who is no longer alive, played a huge part in that experience. So yes, Mm -hmm. of course, it was communication with my own dead father. But I don't remember seeing any ghosts of my father on that dreadful night. End quote. (laughs) (laughs) well i mean here's the thing is that yeah i get asked this all the time i teach in a in a theater that is 1924 right you know what can you tell me the story of the ghost of the theater Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right um and i can tell you the bullshit story of of oh yes this high school girl who, you know, the only safe place she felt was in the theater. And and one night she got away from her abusive father and blah, 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 cut her arm on her breaking into the theater and bled out and died tragically. Oh. There's no evidence of it. Right? <laughs> did, 
does weird stuff happen in a theater? Sure it does. Yep. You know, and but you and I know what he's saying there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, in order in order to play a character that is emotionally distraught by the death of his father that he probably wasn't all that close to anyway, I'm going to take an aspect of my childhood, you mm-hmm. know, my relationship with my dead father and I'm going to use that to fuel my performance. Right. And so yes, every night I'm grappling with the ghost, quote unquote, of my dead father, but did I literally see the spirit of my, you know, frumpy Cecil de Lewis, you know, <laughs> in the theater that night? No, I just, I don't know. I think there's, you know, I, have you ever had that kind of like body dysphoria when you're acting? Well, what do you mean? Where you just, you're like, your logic brain steps away from the performance brain and it's just like, watching you from the outside or am i just nuts you know, <laughs> no i think i know what you're talking about okay okay you know the the analytical part that's just kind of watching you from the outside going what are you doing why are you doing that that, that doesn't was, make any it, sense you God, know i mean you've been doing this wrong all this time yeah okay yeah. or you know all of these people paid ungodly amounts of money to stand up here and listen to you say this and and, and <laughs> i don't know does it make you choke during the performance Sure. I mean, I, I maybe it's just look, DDL choked. He well, choked, he yeah. walked out and said, I'm done with this. Well, I there's a part of me that I think like I wonder if yeah, the, the ghost probably wasn't standing there staring at him, but did he in this intensity to which he pours himself into everything and internalizes so much so that he actually goes through the emotion. Did he actually, for the, a brief moment, feel his father's presence there? I don't know. Well, I think regardless of whether he did or he didn't, um, I, I think it kind of points out one of the, my, uh, okay. So my other biggest problem with this is psychological trauma is real yeah you know and when i was when i was first learning method acting and people said you've got to be careful with this because you could get yourself into a space that's hard to get out of um i was just like yeah whatever you know are you kidding this whatever um but i you know i've had those performances where it's hard to live inside of that character's head Right, right, right. right. If you're really going to get into that thought process and you're going to really live in that character's skin um, and and you're you're using emotional memories that you haven't fully 100% psychologically dealt with. Oh, man. Okay. You know where I've seen that the most? Accidental stage romances. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You might have two people who are totally like, they're either completely lonely or maybe in an unhappy relationship and they get on stage, their characters fall in love. And that's the story of the show. And then afterwards they're like, well, that really sparks flew. And I'm like, or did you just tap into feelings that you might not have explored on your own and maybe hastily jumping into something? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean- that's one where I go, I, I am a little skeptical of that, but at the same time, <laughs> you know, I just, I think I, you know, DDL has this emotional battery. I think we all do. 
Oh yeah. Of this, you know, I, I have this like battery uh, to be able to tap into. And if you're going to psychologically submit or surrender each time, mm -hmm. it's uh, you're you're emotionally exhausting yourself. And I don't think you, I think right. just like a professional athlete, you have a physical battery. You got a quota. Um, this, yeah. 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 So, so here, uh, to that point, in my opinion, he gave a better response in an interview in 2008 with The Guardian before he won his second Oscar for There Will Be Blood. Here's his quote. It's not that I appeared on stage one night and I disappeared the next. I was working and living with that play for a year and a half of my life. And it's a weighty play to live with. So it really didn't surprise me that I got tired by the end. <laughs> oh, yeah. You're like, uh, yeah. I mean, that mm -hmm. is, you know, you watch, like, I, I mentioned on the last episode, uh, I, I, one of my favorite performances of Hamlet that I've ever seen was Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, he did it for the national, you know, within the last five years or so. And yeah. the way he approached it was all of those big, big speeches, you know, the to be or not to be, get thee to a nunnery. Those were almost thrown away. Like the internalizing and everything. He's just like, okay, mm -hmm. I'm getting through this. I'm, I'm just getting through this. This is the logical methodical part of it. And then when he was with other characters on stage, that's when he actually went full hog and was chewing the scenery, but did it well. Like, it was mm -hmm. so impressive to me to watch that because, you know, it's like, as a culture in English language, we all kind of understand Hamlet and, and the through line of it. But mm -hmm. the emotion that you have to bring to that and the emotion you have to go through, like, is living worthwhile? Should I continue this? Um, it, or is it worth it to um, exact revenge on the person who did such evil and is, is killing him actually going to do anything? I mean, it's a lot to go through. And somebody like DDL putting himself into that every single night. Mm -hmm. I mean, he said for a year and a half. I, I didn't look it up. I didn't see how many performances he'd actually completed. I can only yeah. imagine he was probably in the hundreds. But yeah, to just one night go, okay, I can't talk to my dead father again. Ever again. Right. <laughs> and I, you know, and I think being an educational theater, I think that's something that we don't, really understand or prepare our kids for is the idea of eight shows a week for a year right. yeah right you're gonna do this eight shows a week for a year uh-huh um and you know if you just you know go the go-to pat hamilton so yeah. you're lynn manuel miranda and and he's gonna do that for seven years mm -hmm. right and yeah i yeah it's just gotta be uh, it's gotta be emotionally exhausting I've, I've got a friend who is a character part he's he's iago in aladdin on broadway and i just was talking mm -hmm. to him the other day because i had a friend in town and i'm like uh my friend goes well how many uh, we saw him in aladdin the other night how many times has he done it and i said last i checked it was over three thousand. <laughs> <laughs> you know and he still loves it he he has you know social media that uh he puts out new iago content every day oh absolutely yeah that's fantastic <laughs> More so, power to him. Yeah. So in the same interview where DDL said he just got tired, the following exchange occurred. The writer says these words. Can I ask you about your method, I venture? God help you, Day-Lewis responds. But he says it not with exasperation, as when Harold Pinter is asked what his plays are about, <laughs> but rather as one who clearly struggles to define it himself. I do what I do, baby. 
And that is the story of Daniel Day Lewis and Hamlet's ghost. Hamlet's father's oh. ghost. Yeah. <laughs> I do I I do what I do. I do what I do. I do what I do. Did I see my father that night? Yeah, I kinda. <laughs> well, I guess my question is, okay, so the story goes that he saw his father. Where did that story originate from? I think it originated in with the critics and the press. Like, like I, I, I don't think, you know, it must have been something like he went backstage after that. He was just crying and everything. And maybe, maybe he did say it, but I could never find out if he actually stated that or not. I right. think it started or to just it be just, assumed and just became a tall tale. It's, it's, you know, saying the Scottish play and, yep. Yep. and all of that. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, because that, that was what my question was. Okay, so how would we know if he saw his father's ghost unless he said, I actually saw my father's ghost? Yeah, he was standing right there next to the actor playing my father. Or is it just one of those where we have to, you know, we, we British have to stick together. Perhaps he didn't just uh, choke on a line. He, <laughs> he saw his father's ghost. And we all stand behind it. Godspeed, Daniel. Good, good. <laughs> he's not an amateur. He's just insane. <laughs> and we stand by him for that because, damn it, what a great bundle of works he's given us so far. Yeah, oh, yeah. my God. Hey, you want to hear a couple other fun pieces of DDL trivia before we go? Lay it on me. Okay, so his mother was uh, stage and film actor Jill Balkin, B-A-L-C-O-N. I think I pronounced that right. And his grandfather was Michael Balkin, a British film studio head that gave a lot of early assistance to then burgeoning filmmaker Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, hey. Yeah, yeah. And DDL is married to actor, novelist, and filmmaker Rebecca Miller, whose father was legendary playwright Arthur Miller. Arthur Miller. Okay. And of course, one of Daniel's memorable film roles was John Proctor in the screen adaptation of Miller's play, The Crucible. Mm-hmm. And you know, in preparation for that, uh, he actually uh, built a log cabin. And That's then- right. He seduced several like fifteen-year-old girls. To come and... No, I don't know about. I don't. I don't know that. I know about the cabin. I, I think the cabin. He did do that. The, the but... cabin is true. <laughs> uh, bring me Winona Ryder. We're going to get this straight. <laughs> oh man! Well, God, I just love that. I read that story and I went, "Oh, I didn't." ever think that he might have actually been on stage but he was and he had a career and Mm -hmm. there was a story I actually had to cut out of this but it kind of lended itself kind of to visiting things in your past that were really uncomfortable one of the first uh, stage roles he had in the first few years of his career was his Romeo for um, he he joined the Royal Shakespeare Company for a little Mm. while and so he played Romeo but they tour around And when they got to kind of that area of London where he grew up, where he had to morph himself into a little hooligan thug gang member kid, Mm -hmm. he recalled that the kids who were going to come watch him, (laughs) like when a touring Shakespeare production would come to uh, a high school, for example, and everybody is required to go. (laughs) He said something like, you know, those kids, if they're not throwing rocks at windows, they're come, they're being forced to come to Romeo and Juliet. And uh, mm-hmm. it took me 10 minutes for them to settle down so we could get some lines out. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, there's no worse audience than a high school audience forced to come to something. Oh, I know, I know. Like, this will be good for you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, Zach, there we go. DDL, Saw's Ghost. Well, thank you. Absolutely, absolutely. And my listeners, this has been another episode of Euripides Humanities, a theater history podcast. I'll get another one out to you in the next couple of weeks, and I will see you at intermission. <laughs>